You are now listening to Sweep the Rack Podcast featuring Brooklyn Rob and Big Mike. Rob, what's good, homie? Mike, 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 Mike. A lot going on today. There's a lot of sports. Uh, bowling on uh, Masters is on NCAA. Duke just lost. Uh, baseball opening weekend. So there's a lot going on today, Mike. What's going on with you? Wow, Duke lost? Duke lost by one point to State. They just finished like two minutes ago. Oh, man. Yeah, so I haven't enjoyed any of it except for maybe the last 15 minutes or so. And, uh, yeah, I'll just say don't if you don't own a home, I don't know. I mean, home ownership is cool, but it's rough. It's rough, man. I mean, it just never ends. It never ends. So, yeah, I didn't get to watch much sports this weekend, Rob. Uh, it's a bad weekend to uh, have lawnmower and hose problems, Mike. Oh, I had all kinds of lawnmower and hose issues this weekend that I had to take care of. But, Rob, the good news is things are addressed. I'm ready to go. I'm ready. I I live in a neighborhood where it's very competitive in terms of what your house looks like and what your lawn looks like. So I'm ready to I'm ready to get it in. I'm ready to to throw my hat into the foray of, uh, you know, trying to keep up with with my neighbors in terms of what my house looks like. So I'm ready to get it in. Now, there's this these. Does this get competitive or is it something where you guys are like, what about Christmas when Christmas lights? Is it something where you guys are trying to up each other? No, not so much with Christmas. It didn't seem, but it's just in general when I didn't, I moved in in August and, you know, just a couple of my neighbors definitely made a point to make comments of like, Oh, well, you know, yeah. If you need any advice about getting the lawn and the landscaping in shape, let me know. Cause mine's pretty good. And I just took that. Oh, okay. All right. I, I, I'll definitely let you know. No question. But uh, yeah, I'm all set up and I'm ready to go. And uh, yeah, I can't. I, actually, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting the work done and uh, making my house look good. I joke about it, but yeah, I do. Uh, I do enjoy it and I take it seriously. But if you don't own a home, don't buy one until you're ready. I'll put it to you that way. All right, so Rob, we have our uh, our, our our biggest guest to date tonight. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can't tell you how excited I am to do this interview just because of how much of a fan I am of of him and his career and everything he's done in the sport so I, I'm really looking forward to this one super excited yeah this is a guy who uh who you and I you know obviously grew up bowling and was in his prime during uh during the time that we were really following the PBA tour and watching on a weekly basis and coming home from our Saturday afternoon leagues and turning on the PBA and uh, we're, we're extremely excited to, uh, to welcome him as a guest tonight. So without further ado, uh, everyone, you know, <laughs> this man needs no introduction. Uh, one of the GOATs, 47 titles, uh, the most ever. So we welcome tonight uh, Mr. Walter Ray Williams, Jr. So is it, is it Mr. Williams or is it Mr. Ray Williams? How, <laughs> how, how do you go by? Well, my last name's Williams, but uh, I prefer Walter Ray. Okay. All right. I, I'll be honest with you, Mr. Williams. I, I have to use Mr. Williams with you throughout the interview. <laughs> Rob may Rob may refer to you some way differently, but I have too much respect and reverence for you as one of the goats of the game to uh, to refer to you by anything but Mr. Williams. So uh, you'll just have to settle for that, I guess. But uh, all due respect, uh, Rob and I want to say 
thank you for giving us your time and, and coming on. Uh, obviously, you were, you were one of the uh, guests that we really wanted to have and we were really looking forward to have. So before we even get started, we wanted to say thank you a lot. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for uh, inviting me and wanting me to participate in your show. No doubt. We like to have fun over here a little bit. So, you know, if anything that we ask you that, you know, rubs you the wrong way, just uh, speak to Bill O'Neill because we're both good <laughs> friends with him. So you could just take it up with him. And, uh, Bill O'Neill. Bill O'Neill, you, you, know, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. You, you, you can Google him. You can Google him. I'm sure, I'm sure something will come up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so listen, we wanted to start ask right off since you're on your way back from the Masters. We know uh, what were your thoughts from the tournament this week? Well, you want uh, the whole view or my view? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's for me. You know, I'm, I'm I'm getting close to retire on the national tour. People keep asking, "Are you still bowling?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't do as well, and these kids are pretty good." So. Um, I did okay. I had a couple of good days, and then the third day I didn't bowl as well and dropped out of the cut, so that was kind of frustrating. But I did get a check, which is nice. Um, but the lanes were challenging. They were tough. It was. Uh, I, th- I thought it was supposed to be a 38-foot pattern, but it played like about 41 or 42. Um, but I guess they had a little extra volume. Um, but the lanes were tough. I mean, you had to throw good shots, which is what it should be. You know, I think, unfortunately – League bowlers have been spoiled over the last 30-something, 40 years, you know, with easy lane conditions, and, and they kind of think that all lane conditions are that way, and they're not. And, you know, they weren't that way years ago. So it's uh, it's kind of nice to see lane conditions that are on the challenging side and, you know, test the pros' abilities. Uh, do you do you think that having the larger field and having some of the, um, let's say I'll use the term, less skilled bowlers in that field – do you think that affects the outcome in the long run? Not really. Your better your better bowlers are still going to do what they need to do. You know, it's yeah, the lanes might not break down as well, but honestly, you know, on the regular tour, they get 15 minutes of practice, and depending on who you follow, pair can be totally different one way or the other. So, uh, for, personally, I think they need to reduce the practice sessions down um, because the balls do do a lot of changing to the lanes. And, you know, it's not just, it's, you know, who you follow and how they play the lanes and all that. So it, and when you got a field like this, uh, where you got a few extra bowlers that might not know necessarily what to do or how to play the lanes properly, um, you know, it, I don't think it really makes that big a difference. A lot of guys are all worried about that. And I, and, and there probably are instances where it does make a difference a little bit, but it still comes down to guys throwing shots and, you know, doing what they need to do. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you brought it up yourself. How how much longer do you plan on competing against the kids on tour? Do you know, do you do you have any plans of retiring and just bowling the PBA fifty stops? Um, I probably won't completely retire, but um, you know, the last seven eight years, it hasn't been a big issue for me to bowl on the tour, the regular tour, because it wasn't a very big commitment. You know, it was like a seven or eight week commitment, and so that wasn't a huge deal. Now, you know, there's a lot more weeks involved, and um, and I'm just not bowling as well as I used to. This is my third check out of the year, which is pretty disappointing. Um, I think I I think I might have covered my entry fees, but I have more than entry fees, you know, traveling around and stuff. Uh, 
I'm not independently wealthy, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I I like the bowl competition. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be bowling. Um, and, you know, obviously bowling the senior tour, the competition is not as tough. It's still tough, but it's not as tough. And I, I definitely can make a little more money doing that. And I bowled. I bowled. I probably. I think I bowled four regional tournaments this year. In between all the the national tournaments, I bowled. Um, so it, it. I do enjoy the competition, and you know, I I probably won't be bowling a whole lot more the the regular tour this year. You know, they got several extra frame tournaments. I might bowl one, maybe two of those. I don't really know. I got to look at my schedule and and see exactly what I want to do as far as traveling and. Um, and I, I probably will bowl the U.S. Open up in North Carolina, but uh, um, you know, next year I got to really take a hard look and see exactly what I want to do. Um, if I want to continue bowling on tour and beat my head against the wall with these young guys, because these guys are really, really good. I don't think these guys get enough credit. These these young guys are really, really, really good. I think, unfortunately, the average good bowler is so used to bowling on easy lane conditions they forget you know, what the conditions that these guys are bowling on. Rob, you want to jump in there? I mean, the lane conditions definitely affect, uh, you know, these young kids, they're growing up now with these lane conditions. They're growing up bringing in eight, 10 bowling balls when they're 12 or 13 years old to the junior events. So I feel like, and the YouTube, right. And we've heard that in previous podcasts where uh, like Bill talked about it, how, you know, these people, you know, the kids now could go on YouTube and they can go on the internet and they could research the patterns and they could study it. So I feel like that's been a a reason why a lot of these young kids are as good as they are. I mean, wouldn't you say so? Well, I think that definitely the education is a lot better. Um, But I think, unfortunately, some of the younger players, even the players on tour, kind of feel that the bowling balls are better than the players. And it's like if they feel like if they absolutely don't have the right ball in their hand, they got no chance. And they're, they're so quick to change bowling balls if something doesn't happen right. And, you know, the solution is always change bowling balls. It's not to throw better shots. You know, and I, I, I think – and I'm old school, and, you know, I, I basically used one ball this week and, and my spare ball. I threw two other balls, and they were my field balls, and they both got seven counts. But I basically used one ball for 15 games this week. Um, wow, that's you know, amazing. and I, I would, I would bet I'm the only one to do that. <laughs> I, I would take that. I would take, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, and it sounds like you, you know, you're, you're talking about a hybrid retirement, which I'm sure all of your fans out there can understand. You, you've been out on tour for a long time. Do you have any plans after you, you stop bowling on tour full time? Um, well. There's a couple of bowling centers in my area that uh, I'm talking to the owner about, you know, maybe doing something there. But, uh, you know, i got to wait and see. And, and I'm, you know, I, I do a lot of clinics. I've, I've probably done, God, I don't know. I haven't kept really, I haven't really marked it down, but I've probably done 25 clinics this year in and around tournaments that I bowled. And it's kind of, I keep joking about it. I'm, I'm paying for my bowling habit by doing that. <laughs> um <laughs> But I, honestly, I could probably make a lot more money doing that by just doing that instead of uh, um, instead of bowling on tour. But like I said, I do like the I do like the competition. So, um, 
But listen, if you go full-time with that and you come in the areas that Rob and I are in, you, you can guarantee on our entry to your uh, clinic because I'm sure we could both use some lessons from one of the goats. Yes, Rob? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I would definitely be the first one to sign up. Yeah. So, Mr. Williams, how, how were you introduced to the sport of bowling? How did bowling come into your life? Well, as some of you may know, I'm a horseshoe player first. I was uh, kind of a junior phenom playing horseshoes when I was 10 years old. I qualified at the uh, world championships, and you had to throw 50 shoes, a rear counts three points, and a close shoe counts one. With a maximum score of 150 points for 50 shoes, I had 140 points. So I had 45 ringers out of 50 shoes and just missed the, uh, at that time, the world record, which was one more point, one more ringer. Um, and that's a 17 and under division. So that's where I got my nickname, Dead Eye. One of the statisticians put that on a piece of paper and sent it to the back of my shirt. I finished second that year. And the next year, I won the junior championships. At the time, I was the youngest to win it. And also broke the record for high average of 86% ringers in the tournament and ended up winning three more jun- or winning a total of three junior titles and since then six men's titles. I got introduced to bowling when I was about 11 and I bowled one year. My One of my brothers is a year younger than I am. We bowled a league together and it's the only junior league I ever bowled and I think I averaged 123. Uh, I did again until I was a senior high school and they offered it as a, uh, a PE class and I'm like I kind of like bowling so I, I signed up for it started bowling again and joined a summer league that year uh, and I was only 17 but I was already a men's state horseshoe champion so the I didn't even I wasn't that familiar with bowling so I didn't realize you know if they had collegiate bowling and junior bowlers bowl till they were 22 or whatever so I, I already said well, I'm gonna bowl a, a men's league when I was 17 I had to get special permission and all that. And I'm, I'm like, I was kind of confused about it because I really wasn't, I didn't grow up in a bowling center or anything like that. So, um, and it was really when I was about 19 when I got really, like, because I actually took about nine months off. I had appendicitis and um, moved from Northern California, Southern California, and didn't really bowl for like nine months and then got reintroduced when I was almost 19. And that next year, I went from averaging 175 in January to 220 that summer. After they made the lanes kind of easy, <laughs> using a black beauty. Rob, could you imagine if we could have been able to go around hustling with like a nineteen, twenty-year-old Walter Ray Williams Jr.? Oh, I mean, I would have made. I would have had my sponsor <laughs> Luigi. My sponsor Luigi in Brooklyn would have made a fortune off Walter Ray. Yeah, Mr. Williams, uh, did was, you ever I bowl? Would, go ahead. I, I I didn't bowl that much action. I was smart enough to know that these other guys were pretty good. Even though I was averaging 220 and, you know, on a house shot, which obviously was very easy, it was still another year before I started bowling, you know, much better. And, you know, then I started bowling PBA tournaments and regionals and stuff. But um, so it was, it wasn't, I mean, even though I was averaging 220, it was, you know, basically similar to what the house shots are today, if you want to compare things. Just a lot less oil, because obviously using a, a Black Beauty not going to hook on lane conditions today where 40 years ago it did <laughs> so so when did you know that you had the talent to to you know make do, make make this your living and and become a pro well i was going to college and like i said i didn't realize you know that there was collegiate bowling and stuff and i 
I uh, I ended up getting a degree in physics and minor mathematics. And halfway through college, I joined the PBA and was bowling local PBA tournaments in the regionals. And they had uh, an organization in Southern California where I was living at the time called the PCB. I was bowling their tournaments. They were kind of like regionals. And, you know, so I, I got uh, to bowl against, you know, a, a bunch of the great bowlers from Southern California. You know, Mark Baker was one of the top bowlers, Larry Gray, uh, Jim Murdishaw, uh, a guy by the name Walt Block, uh, Lee Taylor, um, Joe Staten. Uh, there was, you know, a bunch of great bowlers. Uh, and so I, when I went out on tour in 1983 at 23, I finally got all my classes done um, and had saved up money to put myself out on tour. You know, I look back on it, I was pretty fortunate because most guys don't really make money their first year out. And I was a decent bowler, but uh, I didn't know how good I was. But uh, um, fortunately, I was also really good at horseshoes. And at that time, I'd won, by that time, I'd won three men's championships and pretty much won most of the horseshoe tournaments I played in at that time. Uh, so it was, uh, I had a little confidence that the few horseshoe tournaments that had any money, I had a pretty good chance of winning them. In fact, I actually did my first year on tour. I I think the first five tournaments, I only had one check, and I started thinking about things. I'm like, this is not really the way I kind of wanted things to go. And I was like, well, okay, this next tournament, you know, it's going to be easy because it's going to be in Miami, the PTQ, half the guys are going to get in. I ended up bowling bad there, not making out of PTQ. I'm like, this is not good. Well, well there's a horseshoe tournament in Houston, so I went to the horseshoe tournament, won that, won like a 1000 bucks. went to the next tournament in St. Louis. And I know now it's, you know, here's one of the toughest PTQs because it's a small field tournament. Like 12 or 15 guys are going to advance out of the field of 100 guys or whatever. I ended up leading that, made it, got a check there, and the next tournament was uh, in Peoria, Illinois, which is where I made my first TV show. So I was, you know, kind of kind of fortunate that uh, things worked out the way they did. If, you know, if I don't make that TV show, who knows? You know, if I if I stay on tour or what? But uh, I did make another TV show later on in the year. Managed to make more than I spent the first few years on tour, and then, you know, 1986, everything started clicking for me and got to be player of the year. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, so so is it fair to say that in the beginning of your career that your horseshoe career was actually supplementing your bowling career? It was a little bit. Um, I I had an endorsement with uh, um, a little horseshoe company. It wasn't a lot of money, but uh, the guy was using my nickname, Deadeye, on the, on the horseshoes and paying me royalties. And that, that gave me a few thousand dollars a year living, living with my parents and saving money that way. And, um, of course, unfortunately my dad kicked me out of the house when I was about 21 or 22 and, and lived on my own for about a year and a half before I went on a tour. But, uh, I was pretty thrifty. I didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs, didn't have lots of girlfriends. So, um, I, I managed to keep my expenses low and save money and, um, and also bowled enough local tournaments in Southern California that I made enough money to, to save and, and go out on tour and on my own dime, basically. I did have I did have some friends that put up $1,000 to help me go out on tour, and, and they actually got money back, plus some. So. Wow, unbelievable. And now, all these years later, you, you are the, the, you know, have the most titles ever won on the PBA Tour. I mean, that's yeah, just that, an amazing story. It it. it it really is, you know, when I, and even when I first started on tour, there weren't that many guys over 40 bowling on tour full time. So I was, 
you know, kind of looking at, you know, at 40 being retired. And fortunately for me, when I got to 40, I was still bowling decent. I said, well, a couple more years, a couple more years, a couple more years, a couple more years, and I'm still bowling on tour. You know, unfortunately, the last seven, eight years have not been very productive for me. But um, like I said, I enjoy the competition, and um, I, 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 I'm a little bit stubborn and don't want to quit. So, and yeah, and listen, honestly, you travel. Yeah, you don't you don't need to to offer any any reason for being out there. I, I think you know I speak for all of the bowling community when I say that everyone enjoys you still being a part of the highest level of the game. And I think that we all agree that you know you deserve and and you you should be a part of the highest level of the game for as long as you want to be really. So um, I don't really think any any explanation is necessary there, but. You know, looking back on your career, I, personally, I would like to review your whole career. We don't have the time, but I want to ask you about individual matches on individual shows. But we're gonna we're gonna boil it down to this: what uh what is your uh the, the title that you recall the most, or the most special title to you that you won in your career? Well, well, thank you for the uh, the statement about me bowling on tour. Um, obviously, my very first time on tv you know that's that was until you actually do it you, you don't know i mean yeah you think well you're good enough or whatever but until you actually do it you really don't know and obviously the same thing goes with my first title and it, it's kind of interesting it was at the same bowling center so it was at uh, landmark lanes in uh, peoria illinois um, that i won my first title but that was three years later i tell guys today that you know it was I don't know the exact number, but it was a, probably about my 100th um, or 110th tournament, you know, that I won my first tournament. And I was 26 at the time, you know. So, and, you know, it, and now I have 47 titles, but I, I won all those titles in basically 25 years. You know, and, and what's really kind of funny is I, I was inducted in the PBA Hall of Fame when I was 35 because at that time that was the requirement, 10 years on tour, and being age of 35, and there wasn't a set minimum number of titles, but if you didn't have, you know, if you only had three titles, you weren't going to get nominated. And I had had 15 titles at that time and got nominated, got elected my first year as eligible, and since then I've won 32 titles. Mm. Amazing. Kind of of ironic. (laughs) Yeah, definitely some irony there for sure. Uh, So, Mr. Williams, Rob and I, had a discussion uh, on, on a previous podcast a little bit about whether the, the PBA is, is kind of moving the field goal post a little bit with the discussion of what makes somebody one of the greats of the game. You know, for a while it was the pursuit of overall titles. Now it seems like the discussion is leaning towards uh, the most majors. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, you can just, you can say whatever you want. I mean, everybody has their own criteria. Um, and, you know, I I still consider Earl Anthony the best bowler ever. Um, I I cannot complain about my career at all. Um, and Jason Belmonte, what he's doing these days is is nothing short of phenomenal. Uh, you know, to, to be in that many TV finals and the major tournaments and to win that many is just, it's incredible. Uh, uh, he's, he's a phenomenal bowler, and what he does is it's it's amazing and anybody who you know wants to knock him for bowling two-handed i 
I think that they all they need to go out and do is go out and practice two-handed bowling. Are you trolling the PBA with your two-handed bowling, or are you taking it seriously? Um, I've been I've been fooling around with it for about ten years when I when I saw Jason and you know Osku and and I saw that it was a way for me to get high rev rate because I've never had a super high rev rate. When I first went on tour, I hooked the ball a little bit compared to the other guys, but um, you know lane conditions were totally different back then. You know they used about a tenth of the oil as they do now, and so I could actually hook a plastic ball back then. You know, now there's no way I could hook a plastic ball. There's, there's so much oil in the lanes, and these guys, their rev rates are so high. My rev rate's probably the same as it is as it was 40 years ago. The difference is, is you know, these young guys hook the ball so much more, plus the, the bowling balls are very, obviously, they're reactive. But uh, um, it's just... I, I, I don't know. It, there's so much to the game. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the on the um, the the your thing coming back? Um, I, it's kind of interesting because up until about ten years ago, the guys on tour didn't even want to try to use your thing, even on the shorter patterns. And it was like all the younger players, pretty much all the younger players, when they come out on tour, and I was one of them. They, they think the only way you can strike is by hooking a ball. I remember my first year out thinking, how does Dick Weber and Roy Buckley and uh, Ernie Schlegel and Nelson Burton, how do they strike? Because they throw the ball so straight. And, you know, it sounds funny coming from me who throws it straighter than everybody else on tour, but I hooked it more than they did, and it just – I didn't understand that. You know, I knew that every once in a while, you know, some of these other guys that threw it straighter were pretty good, but I just didn't understand how they were that competitive. And – you know, after a couple of tournaments where I had trouble keeping a white dot on the right side of a head pin, you know, I was like, I need to figure something out. And I basically, uh, obviously I did, and found out that me throwing the ball straighter was actually a good thing. And hooking the ball was okay, and I didn't mind hooking the ball and don't mind playing fifth and sixth arrow, but, you know, it, it was just, it was a, a learning thing. And so the younger players today, you know, being more receptive to going with urethane and realizing that, hey, this is not a bad option, that standing left and throwing as far right as you can isn't the only play and sometimes not the best play. So learning to control that is what makes, you know, being adaptive and being able to play different parts of the lane is what makes the better players the better players. Yeah, absolutely. Do You, you brought up Jason Belmonte. Do you see any comparison between you and him where right now people kind of feel like, the PBA might be catering to him or to the two-handed style. In, in, when you were at the top of your game and you were winning the most and winning your Player of the Year awards, did you did you feel like there was any of that directed at you? Did you experience the same thing? Um, not exactly, because they always promoted Pete Weber, and that that kind of egged me on a little bit. So mm. I think them promoting Pete actually helped promote myself. You know, because I I was going to go out and prove them different. So, but I, mm-hmm. I unfortunately never felt like the PBA ever promoted me as much as they could have, but you know, that's, uh, I'm not sure if that's a, a fair account or not. Um, Jason yeah, is a you phenomenal know. bowler. And what these, young, what these young players do with the bowling ball and how they make the pins fly is, is, is incredible. And it, you know, from my, my point of view, you know, 
throwing the ball straighter and not getting the pin action like that, I'm, I'm very jealous. However, I also know that there are times that it was to my advantage to throw the ball straighter, and a lot of these guys, you know, refused to throw the ball straighter. I, I remember back in the early 90s, late 80s, Mike Miller and uh, Bob Benoit, who threw the ball straighter than I did, yet learned later on how to hook the ball a lot. Um, Bob, by, you know, doing that ultimate cup and throwing the ball nice and slow and having a really heavy roll, where and Mike Miller taking his thumb out of the ball, and both became great bowlers doing that. However, I remember lane conditions where the lane conditions would favor guys throwing it straighter, and they would scream and yell and complain, and they wouldn't even go to try and throw the ball straight. And I'm like, what is wrong with you guys? You guys you guys threw the ball straighter than I did. You know, so it was very strange that, you know, here are two guys that now are superstars hooking the ball and refuse to want to throw the ball straight. And you see a lot of that with the younger players' mindset where they kind of think the only way to strike is stand left or right. And I think the, the better ones have learned that, yes, that's a, that's a way to play. It may not be something you're going to do an entire tournament, but for a, at least a couple of games, you know, especially shorter patterns for these guys, 40 foot's like a short pattern because they, their rep rates are so high. Um, and, you know, playing a, playing a pattern more to its advantage as opposed to saying, well, I'm just going to overpower everything. So that doesn't always work. And Jason, one of the things that makes him so good is he's able to do a lot of different things, and he's very, very accurate. You know, I don't, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. He's, he's able to generate more basically more power than anybody. However, he's able to play that and be accurate with it. Yeah, I agree. I don't. I don't think he gets enough credit either. Uh, you you brought up Pete Weber. Obviously, we were we were going to ask you a little bit. Is he? It, do you consider him to be your biggest rival? Well, they're all my rivals. Um, mm-hmm. ESPN, you know, or ABC, whatever they. Part of the sporting world likes to promote rivalries. Like I guess they figure that gets fans involved, and. But the truth is, is we all want to beat each other brains in. It doesn't matter who it is, you know. And and in the '90s, Pete, you know, had an early. He started on tour before I did, won titles before I did, and had some spectacular years. Unfortunately, never was able to have Player of the Year award. And but over the years, you know, it, you know, had won a lot of money and obviously a lot of titles. And, you know, then all of a sudden I'm starting catching up to him. And, you know, they're, they're kind of pushing the, the race to $2 million, which, which kind of ironically I ended up uh, beating Pete in back-to-back tournaments in the same house over, the same, over a, a one-week period because it was the last tournament on ABC TV that I beat Pete for the title. And then they had a regional tournament at the same house that same weekend or the couple days following. And I beat Pete again for the regional title to actually put me over the $2 million mark. And it was just yeah, kind of uh, interesting that there was all this, you know, push to have a, a rivalry between myself and a better room on TV. But all the times I bowled on TV, I've only met Pete 10, ten times on TV. So, you know, it, everybody makes these rivalries. But the thing is, is to actually bowl somebody on TV – a lot of times it doesn't happen very often. It's a very unique event. 
So, um, you know, like right now, basically Jacob and uh, um, Jason are the two top players, in my opinion, and they bowled each other, what, once or twice on TV? Yeah, I think two times, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, so those kinds of things are, are more anomalies than anything else. However, you know, the, the press likes to kind of push things in one way or the other. And, you know, when we're on the lanes, we're definitely fierce competitors. I get along yeah. with Pete when he's not bowling, and he gets along with me. We don't hang out together because we're totally different people, but we play golf together sometimes. And You know, but uh, on the lanes, it doesn't matter who it is, Pete or Norm or Parker, you know, I want to beat their brains in. Likewise, they want to beat mine in. Yeah, and it, it, it was marketed that way, I think, Rob. Would you agree with that to, to yeah. younger bowlers at that time who were watching bowling like me and you, that it was kind of marketed, that that's what we wanted to see? We wanted to see Pete Weber against Walter Ray. Do you think that's fair to say, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I think the PBA, and I'm, I guess I'm one of those people that likes to push rivalries because, I don't know, I, I just I, I I like to have some kind of controversy, like, or, or show or 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 storyline when I'm watching a, a television show, you know, like we talked with Rash, uh, um, you know, a few weeks back, and we were talking about the Belmonte Rash rivalry, and that kind of is an interesting storyline. But uh, you know, the Pete the Pete Walters, uh, you know, rivalry was definitely one that I, you know, I, I like to watch at least because of you have Walter who's you know really even keel. He, he gets on the lanes. He does his, he does what he needs to do. And then you got Pete, who's just completely, yeah, you know, uh, an emotional roller coaster, you know? Yeah. The antithesis of that for sure. Uh, Mr. Williams, ha- what about the uh, documentary, the league of ordinary gentlemen? I mean, you, it kind of fits in with what you're talking about here. Do you have any thoughts on that documentary? Um, well, I thought it was uh, decently done. Um, but what's interesting they kind of took liberties and made it sound like, you know, Pete and I were bowling for player of the year, and that wasn't the case, you know. He yeah, I would agree with that. He wasn't really, you know, and they made it sound like we bowled for a title which at that year, which when we didn't, um, we actually bowled a semifinal match. Um, and what's interesting is there was another documentary called Pin Gods back in the early, middle 90s, and it I was saw a similar thing. Yeah, and uh, it's, you can actually find that on YouTube. It's uh, it's a very similar documentary. They followed four players just basically like this one did, and I was one of the four players, and they did the same thing. They took liberties and made it sound like myself and Bob Bespin were, were playing for player of the year or whatever when Bob really wasn't in the mix for player of the year. He was a great bowler back then, but, uh, um, you know, it, it was just kind of interesting how even a documentary they would uh, – um, alter some of the facts and to, to, to make it look one way or the other. But you can obviously, by the League of Ordinary Gentlemen, how Steve Miller loved Pete Weber and how, you know, flamboyant Pete was and all that. And Pete was his boy, you know. And, um, and, and like I said, part of that fueled my wanting to bowl as well as I did. Yeah, that's what I found interesting about that documentary because in that in that final scene where you and him bowl in the semifinal and he loses, they actually follow him backstage, and there was more footage of that than there was of you actually winning that title. 
And I don't know. I just found that really noticeable when, whenever I watch that documentary. I got to be one of the only people in the world that's watching the League of Ordinary Gentlemen more than one time. But <laughs> that says that says more about me than anything. But uh, so, Mr. Williams, you've been around bowling, obviously the PBA now for decades. Good times, bad times. You you've seen things change along the years. We would like to hear your opinion on what has contributed to the decline in popularity for the PBA or really bowling in general. Well, I think, unfortunately, it's, it's been bowling in general and, and the sport of bowling. The recreation part of bowling has gone up, you know, but the, the sport of it, unfortunately, has dropped down. You know, 40 years ago, it was not uncommon for people to be bowling three, four, five leagues in a week. You know, and, you know, double shifts, every bowling center, you know, and I think that was a big part of it. Obviously, the ratings for bowling were huge back in the late 70s and early 80s when there was three or four channels to watch. You know, then you get the advent of cable, and now there's more channels, more competition, and now all of a sudden, you know, the the locked audience that bowling had wasn't really there anymore. The the ratings kept declining and declining, and, and unfortunately, we didn't have the big backing of a lot of good sponsors. And I don't think it was necessarily a fault of the PBA. I think it unfortunately is a, a, a byproduct of the general uh, view of bowling, you know, as a competition sport or whatever, um, that advertisers just didn't want to be involved in bowling, which I've never understood because the ratings in bowling were actually pretty decent, have always been decent. Um, but, you know, they the sponsors would rather spend ten or a hundred times more money on something they're not going to get near the return as they would from bowling. So, I've never I've never really understood that, and it's it's a combination of a lot of things. You know, everybody looks at well, it's a competition of the, the bowling center down the street. No, the competition is the golf courses, the movie theaters, the internet, and the internet is probably the biggest thing. Uh, gambling and all those things they all come into play about why bowling isn't as popular as it used to be. But the hardcore bowlers are probably about as prevalent as they used to be. Um, so it, you know, some people say, well, it's because, of the lane. it's because of bowling got too easy. Well, bowling's only, it's all relative. Easy is whatever you make it to be. Um, you know, it, to me, horseshoe pitching is a lot more challenging for beginner than it is for bowling. But, not everybody goes flock to go pitch in horseshoes because I think part of it is because it is so challenging. It's not such an easy game to play. Do you have any thoughts on what the PBA might be able to do to change that situation and attract more sponsors that would help the tour? I, I think that's just a tough one. I mean, everybody thinks it's an easy sale, and I think it's a matter of finding the right sponsors, the right companies, that are looking for the viewers that we do have instead of necessarily trying to attract different different viewers and, and basically pissing off the ones that we already had, you know, by, by changing this, by doing that, by modifying this. And, you know, it, it there's so much to it. But I think the biggest forward thing going is flow bowling. I think that if they can do that properly, um, I think that could be the biggest thing for bowling, for especially professional bowling, because that is a, a vehicle that, for one thing, is a revenue income. And, you know, it's even possible 
if they could go out and get some sponsors so that it would be a lot less expensive. You know, not that it's terribly expensive, because I've actually talked about that on my fan page, you know, that people will spend lots and lots and lots and lots of money to go watch other sports, yet they won't do it to watch bowling, a sport that they theoretically love. Yeah, I kind of agree with you there. I think that slow bowling may be a big part of the uh, the future of the PBA. And, and Rob and I, I think I speak for Rob, that they've done an, uh, an excellent job since they've switched over uh, from extra frame to flow bowling. I, I watch it all the time. I follow almost everything on there. And, uh, yeah, it's really – it improves all the time, and it's a great product. And, yeah, I, I, Rob, what, what do you think? Do you think you – is that going to play into the future? Sure. The flow bowling does a great job in uh, introducing pros that were introduced maybe on the show. Uh, I think it's if if fans they have subscriptions and they watch it gives them a personal relationship with the the, the pros uh, just by watching a three minute clip. And I've been on record saying this multiple podcasts how the PBA and flow bowling and everybody needs to do a great job in getting the fans to relate to the pros they see on TV every week, almost like a, a NASCAR-ish relationship to their pro, you know. Some, you know, a Dale Earnhardt Jr. guy is going to be a Dale, Her- Dale Earnhardt Jr. guy. They're going to go down with Dale Earnhardt. They love Dale Earnhardt. That's what I think kind of what the PBA needs to do in flow bowling is build that relationship with the fan base and the pros they see on TV every week. Yeah, I agree. Yep. It's a, There's a lot they can do. I, I, I definitely better than it was. I still think they can do a lot better job. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that costs money. So there's only so much they can do. But hopefully it's just going to continue to get better and, and they get more subscribers to help bring a better product so they can get more subscribers. Yeah, absolutely. And I know personally I would I would pay more for the product. I know a lot of p- people probably won't be a fan of me for saying that, but I would. I would pay more for the product, especially if it if it allowed them to improve it. I would have no problem, you know, paying a little bit more for that product than I than I currently do. But uh, Mr. Williams, listen. So we we know that you're traveling from from the Masters right now, and you guys are, are in transit. Uh, do you still have your motorhome? You know, you were famous for having a large motorhome. Is that what you're still traveling in? Uh, no, I sold that a couple of years ago. So I I uh, sold it a couple of years ago and. Traded in, traded my Jeep that I was uh, traveling, you know, the vehicle that I was towing, and bought a uh, Ford Fusion, and it had 650 miles on it when I bought it, and two years later, it has 75,000 miles on it. (laughs) 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 So, and and now I've got a, I bought a new SUV this year. I bought it December 30th. And now it's got what uh, thirteen thousand miles on it. So that's in three months' time. Well, uh, yeah, you guys, you guys put the hurt on the cars. We all know that. I, I, uh, I do a lot. I do a fair amount of traveling. Yeah, yeah, you can say that again. Uh, did anybody ever have like the guts to come up to your motorhome directly? Because I know you used to park it in the in the in the bowling alley parking lot most of the time. Anybody have the guts to come up to the motorhome and just straight knock on the door and ask you for an autograph or a bowling ball or something like that? Uh, once in a while, but that was really rare. Um, we've actually had somebody walk into an RV because they thought it was an RV show because there was like you know ten or twelve RVs out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. I can't imagine somebody yeah, so knocking no. on the door. 
<laughs> True. How many times do you think you've signed your autograph for people? Oh, God, I couldn't even tell you. I, uh, Is it over a million? Quite a few. I'm sure what's, it's not even close to that, but it's, I'm sure it's a lot. What's the, what's the craziest thing you've ever signed? Anybody ask you to sign a, a body part or a baby or something like that? Uh, I, I, I prefer not to sign body parts because, to me, it's just going to wipe off. Uh, you know, I, I would prefer signing something that's going to be permanent, basically. Uh, probably the craziest thing was an aquarium in a bowling center in Japan. <laughs> an aquarium? That's the only like one I signed. Tank, like the tank itself? Yes. Yes. A fish tank. Yes, an aquarium. It, all right, but hold, I need details here. Hold on, I need details. So what, did the person bring the tank to the bowling event? No, it was part of the bowling center. It was in the uh, bowling center. Oh, okay. All right, okay. That make, <laughs> thank you. That makes much more sense now. Okay. All right, well, listen, yeah. the new trend today is for yeah, That would have been get, better if they brought it. That would have been cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that. yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about the guy lugging a, a fish tank with him on public transportation through through Asia, you know, to try and get this. <laughs> This this uh, fish tank autograph by one of the goats of the game. I mean, I could totally understand. But the the new trend today is for people to get um, you know a celebrity to sign uh, their their autograph on their body part, and then they get a tattoo over it. You know, so it does become yeah. permanent. So look out for that. You know, be on the lookout for that. Somebody might approach you about that. But but the the last thing that we uh, that we wanted to ask you here before we get you out of here. Uh, is just a- any advice that you have for young bowlers out there. You know, you, you're somebody who's so respected in the game and has come such a long way. You have a lot of insights, obviously, as to where the game is going. You know, t- give us a minute and give some advice to, to young players out there who aspire to be where you are. Well, I think biggest thing is learn as much as you can to play all parts of the lane, different ways to throw the ball, not just – you know, the younger players all want to hook the ball. And I understand that. That's a that's a fun thing to do. I, I've actually kind of had fun bowling two-handed, you know, learning to hook the ball a little bit. Um, and But the thing is, is, you know, be able to play up the lane, playing outside part of the lane, even though you might not see that very often, and playing the sixth and seventh and eighth arrow, you know, for the right-handers, um, you know, learning how to get in front of the ball return or get around the ball return or whatever the case is. Um, it just learn to do lots of different things and learn to pick up your spares. Spares are so important. Um, it, it's, you know, I, I keep watching some of these younger players and I keep commenting. I wish I was good enough to miss single pins, you know, because <laughs> they, they seem to throw lots of strikes and then miss spares. Hey, I was hey, going to say, you know, how can you give that advice when like on the PBA shows this year, we've seen multiple players miss spares and still win. It's, it is amazing, but well, and a lot of them cost them titles too. So it's, but the thing is, is that TV is a different, different animal altogether. And you know, guys come when they get out there, they're they're really concentrated on getting strikes. And I've I've been guilty of that also. You get out there, you practice, you practice your strike line. You don't necessarily practice your your spare line. The lights are different, the pressure is different. You know, everything's a little bit different when you're on TV. And all of a sudden, you know, something you, you you take for granted, all of a sudden, oh, my God, you you, you messed up on. And it's so easy to do. And I've done it before. I've, I've missed two 10 pins on. I'm going to have to dig that up. But uh, 
know, it happens. And But it does seem like the younger players aren't necessarily as good as they could be on their spares. And, you know, it, it's definitely an easy part of the game, but I think it gets overlooked a little bit too often, especially by the younger players. Yeah, I remember when I used to watch you on TV. If you missed a spare, if you like the very, I mean, it almost never happened, you know. But if when you did miss a single pin spare, it was like I saw a ghost. <clears throat> Mike, yeah. I was reading it. I was reading a crazy stat about Walter. Uh, he uh, went a whole year on tour without missing a single pin spare. I think it was like 191. Well, that's that's not 100 percent true. Oh. Back that 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 year, they only kept track of match play. They did not keep track of. Uh, qualifying rounds however i did because i had an app on my phone that i would use and i would keep track of it and i actually missed like seven single pins during qualifying but for some strange reason i didn't miss any during match play so yeah my that i think it was like 460 something single pin spares that i made however you know i i shot like 500 other ones and i missed like seven of those for whatever Mm -hmm. reason qualifying i you know i don't it might have been one or two you know, where I was trying to do something different, but I, I didn't do that a lot. So it was probably just bad shots. And may, for me, basically just not paying attention, you know, get up there and either you're frustrated, which happens way too often in this game. Um, and you're just not paying attention. Mm. Seven out like of 500. I missed, I missed seven last week in three games in league. <laughs> <laughs> seven out of seven out of 500. Well, Listen, Mr. Williams, we, we greatly, greatly appreciate your time. You were one of the top people on our list to have on this podcast, and, and Rob and I are huge fans. But before we get you out of here, we, we just want to give you a chance to, to plug anything you want to plug. Obviously, you're with Brunswick right now, but you know, give our listeners a chance to know uh, what other endeavors you're supporting out there. Okay, well, thank you. Um, obviously, Brunswick, they're, one of, they're my biggest sponsor. And then I've also got uh, Ford Driving Skills for Life, which is a great program. Back when I was young, they had driver's ed as a, it was part of school, and now it's most places it's it's extra and you got to pay extra for it. Well, for driving skills, they do all these free driving ed uh, classes throughout the country. So go to their website if you happen to be in the 14 to 17, 18-year-old age, and, you know, you can go to my Facebook fan page and check that out um, or, or a link for it and find out where they're at. And if they are, I highly recommend it um if, if they charged it'd probably be 750 dollars for the weekend to do something like that um and then i've got uh um it, yeah, it's a free program but uh, if like i said if they charged it probably be, you know close to a thousand dollars i would bet got uh yeah, I know. Extra shoes. is that only for teenagers because i actually know a lot of adults in new jersey that could uh use that program mm-hmm. yeah so helpful <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't I, I don't know that they restrict it on age, but obviously they they gear it towards the uh, the youth. You know, they they do a lot about distracted driving and and learning how to drive. Um, you know, with a skid and stuff like that. Um, but I actually I actually participated in that. That was that was actually pretty enjoyable. They take the Mustangs and they put casters on their rear wheels so that they they slide really easy and they put you know cones out in this parking lot and you do you know little donuts around them basically and. It was a lot of, it was very knowledgeable and entertaining at the same time. But uh, my Dexter shoes and then Mongoose uh, Real Bowlers tape and uh, Vice, uh, Vice Grips, their products, 
and I also have uh, Bowl for Life, uh, one of the um, charities that Chuck Gardner works with. Uh, great program for the uh, collegiate bowlers. Okay, so listen, all of our listeners heard those uh, those things that Walter Brady is involved with. I'm actually going to check out the Ford Driving Skills myself and uh, and see what that's about. But, uh, yeah, listen, support what these guys are involved in. This is a big part of how these guys make their living, and uh, they need our support out there. So anybody who's listening, anybody a part of the bowling community, let's make sure they show we show them this support. Uh, Walter Ray, listen, again, yep. thank you so much. We appreciate it. Safe travels, and uh, Rob and I and all of our listeners will be following uh, what you're doing on tour whenever you're out there. So uh, good luck in the future. Well, thank you, and uh, hopefully uh, it's something worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely, always, always. We, we, we greatly appreciate the time again. I appreciate it, really. Thank you. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Have a good one, man. Damn. Wow, Rob! No, I wish we could. I I want to do like a four-hour. We had two hours. I wish we had two hours. I know. I could have kept him on the phone for hours, just listening to him talk about everything bowling related. Am I wrong for saying that? You know, he 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 likes to chop it up. Oh, you know, I mean, there's still hope for me though, Mike. Coming from that interview, you know, at one time he had no girls, no money. Yo, there's still hope for me to be the goat, Mike. Absolutely, absolutely gives you gives you something to look forward to, right? For sure. Yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, just to hear him like talk about how much like he's that the passion is still there. You could tell like he's he's competitive. He wants to win. He's not happy. He's not winning. I mean, you could. I mean, you get that sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that. As, as a lot of athletes do and great athletes do, they, they feel that people are always judging them based on their current performance and not so much what they've done in the past. And uh, I think that you probably hear some of that from him in, in our conversation, whereas you and I were more likely to focus on his past accomplishments. Um, yeah, he seemed more focused on what he's done lately or not done lately. And, uh, you know, come on. I mean, somebody like that doesn't need to be focused on – really doing much more am am I wrong for looking at it like that yeah I just think that it's just the kids these days man I hate to be sound like that old guy you know but I think it's the kids these days a lot of these kids you know don't realize how good and how great his career I mean yeah you heard Rash talk about it like when, when we asked him the goat question I mean he's like hands down Walter Ray like the guy is one I mean titles on titles and it's just um, uh, it's it's it, he has an amazing career and uh, I mean uh, shit I, I wish we could have had like five a five part episode Mike we could have around like you know just just talking with him about some other stuff that we didn't even get a chance to to, to speak with him about. Yeah, uh, I think we should share with the listeners that our question list was extremely long uh, for that interview and we had to cut it down because. Uh, you know, we just we just have some time constraints, obviously. But uh, Rob, I think we definitely need to have a uh, a part two of that interview at some point. What do you think? Yeah, I I, I would love to have him on. I mean, again, obviously, because he had so much. You know, you, you you see how he is on television, right? Even keel, he's pretty quiet, right? Not too emotional. He he goes there and gets the job done. The one thing that surprised me the most is 
is how talkative he was. Like he just was so much like, you know, energy talking about bowling in his, in his past and, you know, talking about his horseshoe days, which by the way, Mike, you know, wouldn't you love to go just pitch horseshoes with the guy and like have a beer and, and just watch him not miss. And, and here we are throwing horseshoes like over the barn and hitting ourselves in the head with it. I mean, that'd be an awesome night out. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. It was a, it, it was an amazing story to hear, uh, hear his background. I was surprised to hear that the horseshoe pitching success at one time supplemented his bowling. I mean, I thought that that was really interesting. You know, here's a guy who, ended up being one of the greatest players in our game who for all intents and purposes could have never even reached that level of the game had he decided to go in a different direction. If Horseshoes paid money, I mean, if Horseshoes was a successful, like if he could have made it a a full-time income pitching Horseshoes, he might have never became a bowler probably. True. But uh, Rob, that that interview goes down in in the books right there. I know. I'm, you know, just excited to listen to it again. But uh, this is the reason that we started this podcast to uh, give these guys a voice and uh, and and let them let them express some of the things they want to express. And obviously, we gave that platform to uh, to Mr. Walter Ray Williams tonight, and uh, he took full advantage of it. And uh, I thought I thought it made for a great interview. So we'll uh, we'll have to see what the uh, people think when we put it out there, Rob. So. Uh, yeah, let's talk about uh let's talk about the last couple rounds and, and mainly this this final match here. Uh you know, Kenny Kenny Ryan ends up as the guy left out and you have uh Chris Sloan and uh Mitch Hoop and Jake Peters. The third guy, excuse me. Jake Peters, yes, making the show. Okay. Along with Michael Holloman, correct, and Jacob Buttriff. Correct. Yeah, so uh I don't know. I think it, it, here's what you see every year at the Masters to me you see at least one or two unknown guys who you don't really know too well make a run. And again, we see that this year. We see that with, you know, Michael Holloman. I mean, he's somebody who kind of bowled well last week at the World Series, but I don't even know anything about him. have have no idea where he came from in terms of, uh, of, of his game and, and what his background is. But, yeah, I think uh, you, you always see that at the Masters, and I think this week proved that to be true. You know – uh, I'm I'm kind of using this as a test for the PBA tomorrow night to see if they they're, they're going to let us in on some of these players that we haven't seen before. Uh, Hupe is another one. I personally don't know anything about Hupe. I know he bowled for Wichita. It's probably about it. So I'd be curious to see what his story is and if they go into a little bit of his background as well. Peters has made some shows every once in a while. I believe he has a title. Um, and uh, Sloan's another one too. Like I don't really know anything about him. So great show, and the fact that there's a lot of new faces going to be on the show tomorrow night. And then you got uh, Butcher uh, leading, uh, which you know isn't isn't a surprise to anybody. Uh, he's probably going to be the most experienced guy on the show, which is pretty crazy to say because he's not super experienced uh, on TV either, right? Yeah, but you got to like his chances though, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, his look is, I mean, the left side looks good. Urethane's in play. You got to play outside of five. I mean, this is his wheelhouse, Mike. This is his major to win, honestly. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. But uh, it, w- it was an interesting match play, though, Rob. What what uh, what were the highlights for you? Uh, there was definitely quite a few, honestly. There's so many matches to kind of go through in my head. 
Uh, I definitely think that one of the uh, Butchriff, uh, for some reason this sticks out, I don't know why, but uh, Butchriff needed a mark to win one of his matches, and I, I didn't write down his name or who he bowled, but he went dead through the face, and a split was standing, and it was, a, I believe, a 4-7-10, and the 10 fell at the last second for him to mark and move on. Uh, you know, I mean, you have to catch breaks, Mike, uh, in this format uh, to advance. Uh, there's a lot of luck involved, too, because, you know, you could bowl 700 and lose, and then the guy next to you and your pair to the right of you could bowl 590 and win. So, you know, it's almost high rollerish in, in that type where, uh, you know, it's very pair-to-pair specific at Gold Coast. I mean, just from personal experience, bowling the tat. You get on one pair, you have a 260 look. You get on the next pair, you got a 150 look. And it's just, obviously, it's a higher level, so the lanes are played better. But qualifying, that's why the scores were so low. It only took, like, plus 69 or 70 to make to the top 64. Mike, for 15 games and 450 entries of the world's best bowlers, plus 70 to make it, I mean, that's a low score, Mike. Yeah, they definitely look tough out there. I watched I watched a little bit throughout the week uh, when I could. Um, being on the East Coast, the times didn't match up with me real well because the last block that started after I – well, I, I watched um, the second block of the day uh, for the most part. But the later block was a little bit late for me to stay up and watch the whole thing. So, But, yeah, they definitely look tough during qualifying. What stood out to me in the match play, again, I didn't, I didn't watch all that much this weekend. But uh, – I noticed that the young man who led Sol- Solomon Salami, I think I'm I'm chopping up his name there, but shout to him, man. I mean, true, he put on he put people on notice this week. No, sixteen years old leading the Masters for pretty much all of qualifying. Yeah, I would say that, you know, he definitely put everybody on notice. Just hey, uh, two handers, we're here, we're young, and we're here to stay. So. I think you're seeing more and more two-handers, younger two-handers make the cuts, uh, more and more urethane getting thrown. And uh, it's definitely, I, I'd say, like this is maybe even the start, the last year of a completely new era of bowling. Uh, and, I, you know, I definitely think that resin is still going to be there, obviously, for leagues and in, in, in higher-scoring tournaments. But high-competitive, tougher shots, I see a lot, a lot of urethane getting thrown. So uh, I'm sure the yeah, bowling so, ball company. Yeah, they take note of that too. But I, I just noticed yeah. that, you know, he led, and as happens a lot at the Masters, the person who leads, you know, they, they get beaten that first match. They're going up against somebody who is good, perhaps the champion from the year before, which was the, exactly the case in, the, in, in this uh, instance. And, yeah, I, I just noticed that he took an early loss, and then I didn't hear much about him the rest of the way. But uh, still, shout to him. So I, I was on top of that. And uh, I watched a little bit last night, and I noticed uh, Norm Duke kind of struggled to carry in his matches, and he got beat by an amateur who, who I would assume, um, you know, lost later in a later round because uh, I didn't hear his name at the end here. But uh, And I also saw the match with Anthony Simonson where he had 300 shot at him and ended up coming out victorious. Hey, man, there's so much, there was so much going on. Anthony Simonson like made it far. Don Barrett made it far. All it takes is you just run into one guy and they got a good look on that pair and they come out the gate with a big game and you, you know, 
leave a couple flat tens and you, you probably norm Duke and you're hitting the pocket and you're not striking and you're bowling a lefty or a two hander who's playing up the gutter and I mean, stringing them and it's just a tough format. You know, you, you got to get a little bit of luck with your draws too, or be the lefty, the two hander with the year thing. Yeah. The le- the lefties had a good look this week. It seemed. Oh, they had a great look. It was, I mean, you think about Holloman, uh, Bart, uh, and, you know, there was a, um, some other lefties, but, you know, there was a lot of uh, Rhino Page made it far. Uh, he, he had a great look. I, at one time I was like, Rhino is going to make, he's going to lead this. I, I thought he was my, like, pick at, at one time today to actually make it and, and make the show, you know, but it's just so hard to, like, advance. Yeah, Kenny Ryan, too. Another lefty in there that uh, that obviously was there near the end. Uh, so, Rob, you, you mentioned, you know, how low the cut was, and you mentioned uh, – you know, how low in general the scores were. And you and I both know that part of the low scores has a lot to do with uh, the the cross that's going on out there. And by the cross, we mean the the quality of players that the higher-end players are following out there and how those players are cho- play, you know choosing to play the lane. Do uh, you want to talk a little bit about that, Rob, about how that, that affects things? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, look at like Belmonte didn't make it. Bill O'Neill didn't make it. They were on the same pair. They crossed together. Uh, and I think one day they both went like 100 under each or something like that, which is, I mean, Mike, if you're a betting man, and, and I bet you before that squad and said, Mike, I bet you $1,000 that Belmonte and O'Neill both go minus 100 on the same day in the same squad. Would you have take that bet? You only would have had to get to the word. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, listen, it affects things, right? And and in this event, in this 450 entries, the quality of the field is all over the place, and therefore the ball selection and lane play is all over the place. And uh, there was actually an article on Flow Bowling this week, I think written by Lucas Wiseman, who uh, – suggested that perhaps the minimum qualifying average for the Masters should be raised. So let's get into that a little bit. You know, I, 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 yes, I, I think 180 is, is too low. Uh, but, I mean, the average is based on what, though, Mike? You're basing it on just random, like, regular house league play? You bowling by, really judging by some of these, judging by some of these scores, yeah. Yeah, we, but here's the you thing. want to go dumpster diving for a little bit? You want to do here's some dumpster thing. diving with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. Let me, let me, let me make a point here, though, first, before we go dumpster diving, because we all know you, you love to go dumpster diving. Oh, um, I, I did so much dumpster diving this week. Listen, every time I brought up the standings, I went right to the bottom first, just to check it out, just to check out you the know, bottom first. I, I know you do. So it's one of those things where you, you got to um, – guys who – are averaging 140, 150, but you want to also don't want to shut out a lot of people from bowling because it affects the prize fund and it affects the entries, right? So if you're only letting 100 people bowl the Masters when 500 people want to bowl, because essentially you're taking out like 40% of the field if you're really doing it, uh, you know. Now, the PBA needs to come up with some solutions to the issue. I don't think a minimum average, like, raises is going to help really because averages are inflated anyway across the country when it comes to bowling regular league shots uh i think 
you got to run some kind of qualifying squad because uh, qual- qualifying squad maybe a PTQ, but make it a longer format PTQ. And I don't know, you find a way where people like who have earned the right to bowl don't have to go through it. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of solutions that you can get rid of these 180 averages, at least a lot of them, without having to not take the entry fees, I guess, right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely think that all the people that are allowed to bowl, it should probably be cut down somewhat. I understand it's going to affect maybe prize fund, et cetera. Um, I would have to, I would have to hear the specifics on exactly how much that would affect things. But uh, I definitely think that for tournaments like the masters or the U S open, like you said, there should be sort of qualifying to, to get to the actual event. Um, I don't feel like it should just be pay 500 and have a, a glorified pro-am, you know, that in essence, um, maybe takes away some of the legitimacy of the tournament. Is it fair to say that, Rob? Yeah. I mean, we, we touched on this a few podcasts ago that me imagine being able to pay $500 playing in the masters, like for golf. Yeah. I mean, come on. It's like, it's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. Like me or you would be like you said before me or you would be out there with some of the top pro golfers, you know, hacking it up and, and it just shouldn't be that way. I mean, that, to those guys, us being out there would make it harder for them to 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 focus on the competition, and not so much on the, you know, the the sideshow, I guess you could say. But well, here's uh, another point. here's another point before you go dumpster diving because I know you're ready to go head first. No, come on, um, I want to get into it, please. That was the I perfect know. transition, Rob. I know we got to got to. Here's the thing, though, for the sponsors, what watching, right? So. If you're a PBA and you say to a sponsor like, I don't know, whatever, a big, big company, hey, we got the Masters this week. Here's a flow bowling subscription. Check it out. Let, you know, let me know what you think. And then you're watching flow bowling and forced to watch people averaging 150 on, on, on a few pairs. And you don't have really a choice of who to watch on flow bowling. It's just you're watching what pairs and all of a sudden now you have four guys that are averaging 160 on a pair and you're sitting there watching these guys throwing essentially gutter balls and fouls and whatever else the hell they're doing. Uh, your sponsor, you're like, what the hell am I even watching? Like, this is terrible. I don't know. I think it, it does. It affects the PBA a little bit. I mean, is that, a, is that a valid point or am I just blowing smoke as Tom Clark would say? Ooh, ooh. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's a valid point or not. I have to give that more thought. I, I don't really think about it like that in terms of what the, uh, what the sponsors think. Because quite frankly, I think if sponsors are watching, they're probably not watching until the later rounds of the event anyway, when you're down to the, to the best of the best. Right. right. Fair but point. What, Fair. what concerns me is that maybe some of the guys who deserve to be there aren't there not so much because of their talent or how they bowled, but more so because of the effect that the overall environment had on them. Is that, is that a, a fair way to look at it? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Okay. Can All we right, dumpster Mike, dive? So, yeah, you, you want, <laughs> I wish I had a sound effect to dumpster dive. Maybe I'll have to add that to the uh, sound effect here, but let's go dumpster diving, Mike. Okay. So, I'm going to read you the with. I'm going to give you some information from the withdrawal list. Can I start there? Sure. All right. So you have uh, quite a few withdrawals this week. Uh, James Helen from Lindenhurst, New York. He withdrew uh, averaging 157, and he withdrew with two games to go. Hmm. 
only two games ago. What do you think about two games ago? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe injury? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I would think so. I would that would be my guess. He was an amateur. He was an amateur. So I'm going gonna, I'm okay. gonna to cut all the amateurs some slack. All right, Rob? Yeah. Unless yeah, we know their good. name, right? Okay, like Robert Smith, withdraw. 180. He was he threw, through eight games, 180, and he withdrew. It's got to be Robert Smith, Ventura, California. Uh, you know, so he was a withdrawal. I'm going to leave most of the amateurs alone. Just going to give you their names. Uh, you had James Hellen, Michael Norman withdraw after 10 games, 159. Jeremiah Bullock, Meridian, Indiana, withdraw after 10 games, 161. Uh, Tim Cagle, Pinole, California, withdraw with two games to go, 176. Colton Rossetti, Wichita, Kansas, withdrawal after 10, 180. Robert Smith, no name, withdrawal after eight games, 180. Tommy Jones, withdrawal after nine games, 184. Lance Bentley, withdrawal, uh, averaging 159 after one game, Rob, from Mesa, Arizona, after one game. Bold one, withdrew. Not, no amateur next to his name, PBA member perhaps. What could the story be there? Lance, you give know, us a call. Let us know. I think the withdrawals is a little bit tougher because, you, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of give the benefit of the doubt. I got to hear these stories, though, Rob. Rob, I got to I mean, hear these stories. Oh, I mean, you want me to, I mean, we could, I could hit up Tommy Jones and ask him why he withdrew if you want. No, I don't need to hear from Tommy Jones, honestly, on a withdrawal. If he wants to withdraw, he's 100% entitled to withdraw. He is, but, absolutely. Yeah. I, any, guy, any regular guy out there, totally well within their right to withdraw. They've just bowled an entire season. They're getting ready for the PBA playoffs. Who knows? Another five, ten games might make a difference to them health-wise. We can understand that. But, Rob, you, you plan to, to bowl the Masters, you know, you you yep. travel yeah. from wherever, right? And then you go out, you bowl one game, 160, and you withdraw. I mean, what could have happened? What could have happened? Like, did you get a phone call saying something's wrong? You got to come home? That I could understand. You know, was there a medical issue or something? Okay, fine. I could understand. It would have to be a pretty crazy story, but I could understand that. All right. So, off of the uh, – Kurt Pilon also withdraw uh, mm-hmm. after five games, minus 23. Yeah, he just so, had a great World Series, too. Yeah, he didn't even bowl that bad. I mean, minus 23 after five games, he was still in it. All right, so let's get into to a little bit of the people who did actually complete the 15-game qualifying. And, again, I'm going to stay away from the amateurs here. I'm not going to discuss okay. the amateurs. We don't really know them. I don't want to end up picking on some kid or something who wanted to take a shot at bowling the Masters. If that's the case, kudos to them. You know, I hope they learn from the experience. But, Rob, anybody without an A next to their name is, is fair game. game, no? Yeah, well, they're pros. So finishing last in the field in 438th place was Peter Sacagion from Glendale, California. Do you know this guy, Rob? You you lived out in Cali for a while. You know this guy? What's the last? No, I don't. And that's probably a problem. <laughs> Why is okay. he the matches if he's not bowling locally? Right. Glendale, California, 151.07 for the 15 games, minus 734. That's a big number. <laughs> Mike, that's a big, big number to shoot. For 15 games it is. I mean, 151. Oh, man, brutal. One block he started out, 125-125. Duplicate. Imagine with this guy. I mean, dude, that's brutal. Like, trying to get, imagine trying to get a read off that pair and he picks three off the left. Like, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to. All right, go, going up a few spots, we had David, Z, Z, uh, looks like Zakja. From Marysville, Washington, 
And uh, he was one. Now, I mean, this is a marked improvement. He was 157 for the 15 at minus 640. So, you know, but still, I, I just think to myself, I mean, if you're making this kind of investment, don't you want to have more confidence in how you're going to perform? I mean, yeah. About what it takes to put the entry fee like 500, Mike, some, something around that, right? And then you have to pay the travel, the air for Washington to Vegas flight, right? Hotel for, for three days, four days, practice session, equipment. It's a huge tax write-off, Mike. That, uh, that's my story. These, they just tax. But that's pretty much what they're doing. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to understand 150. That's a low number, Mike. Like that's not averaging one. I've averaged 160s. I, no, I'm not. You know what? No, I've averaged 170s and 180s before in tournaments. But anything lower than that is like for 15 games, three days averaging 150. That's that's yeah. But it's also lot. it's also the stage. Like I think it's okay to go to a local tournament. And, and average 130 for 10 games, you know, if right. it's an hour or two from your house and, you know, sure. you, you decide to go bowl that on a Sunday afternoon or something, and that's sure. what you enjoy. That's what you like to do. I think right. what, why I get so interested in, in the dumpster diving is just because uh, it's about the effort that people put in to have that negative of an experience. Right. right. And, and Rob, I'm wondering, we are not going to get into this right now. Let's be clear. Okay. This is going to be a later episode, but, this kind of relates to the conversation you and I have a lot about junior gold. Does it not? You know, like you put up all this money, you know, is it, is it a good thing or is it a positive to go out and have this type of experience where you average 150 or 160 for 15 games? Is that positive? People go home and, and positively talk about that experience or, do they go home and bang their head against their wall and say, why did I waste my money thinking that I could actually go out there and, 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 you know, bowl well. I think it's person by person, Mike. Some people use that as a tool to, to make themselves get better. Right. And some people will use that to discourage. Uh, It's, it's easier for a, let's just say 30 year old or a 35, 40 year old to be able to take its lump average 160, but use that as like fuel to like go to your local pro shops and get better. I mean, that's what, yo, like that's, you could easily shoot your confidence and get discouraged. And that's your point about junior gold. That's tough for a 12 year old or an eight year old or a 15 year old who thought they were great. And then they go up and they show and show up and they bowl one, the average 140. It's tough to, to, to teach a kid that you got to use this as, you know, fuel to get better. It's easier just for them to get, to get discouraged and to just like pick up another sport. No. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it later. I yeah, don't even want to yeah, talk yeah. about it now. I we'll we'll yeah. say, it up. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I just saw a comparison. I had to, I had to throw it out there, but what you said about, Oh, you know, people go out and they bowl bad and they use that as motivation to get better. No, listen, I think that's part of what's wrong with the bowling industry and the bowling world is that there's a lot of people out there who don't understand what needs to be invested to get to the level that a lot of these guys are at the type of time and practice and, and equipment, et cetera, that really needs to be uh, invested in to, to get to this type of level. And when you allow people to just go out and bowl in, in this type of serious environment, and and they haven't invested 
that time or that money or, you know, however they, they needed to. I just don't agree with that. You know, I think that, that it should be proven that you have made an investment to get to a certain level before you even get a chance to compete in this kind of environment. But, you know, hey, bowling, 430 entries. So I guess, uh, I guess that's the bottom line. Here's the question, though, and this is a really good question. I think I'm going to pat myself on the back here. Is this a problem, a player problem? The guy who are you blaming the guy who went out and averaged 150 for bowling? Are you blaming the PBA for letting the guy who uh, maybe is, oh. is 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 a 180 bowler? Bowl? Let's be clear. This is a complete bowling industry problem. Let's be clear about that. This is a complete bowling sure. industry problem because the the guy who goes and travels to this tournament, Rob, should know locally he should have the understanding enough from bowling locally that what he bowls on in his local league and what he's going to compete on are two different worlds Mm -hmm. and the entire bowling community has failed in educating almost you know a large section of the bowling population i'm going to say um in that regard you know, the, that's what I think part of the problem is, is that some of these people think, oh, well, you know, I do well at my home house and I'll go out here and give it a shot at the masters of bowling. And like, it's two different worlds, you know? So I think we've, we've miserably failed in that regard. Yeah. But I mean, to, to some kind of defense here, the PBA did try to start a PBA experience league. The USBC does put the shot. They, they do use tough shots at the USBC national tournament. I don't know if it's a USBC or PBA issue. I think it's a local proprietor issue where the people who are running the bowling centers, they don't want to be the hard bowling center because nobody will bowl league there. And Yeah, but it's the USBC's job to enforce that, though. I mean, and I know that I know there's other you know problems with it and, and things involved, but yeah, it's it's their it's their job to do it. But uh, Rob. Who who do we like? Who do you like on the show? I mean, we said Buttriff, but so so let's throw this question out there. Out of the other four guys on the show, who do we like to give Buttriff a challenge for the title? Uh, Holman, Holloman. I'm sorry, I, I keep calling him Holman because his name re- re- resembles Marshall. Uh, I like Holloman. He, he he's got he's aggressive, man. He's using urethane. He's up the gutter like Buttriff. Uh, it just seems like a kid. He's pretty even keel. Doesn't really get too emotional. Uh, that's my that's my guess. Is Holloman is gonna be the um, the guy that is gonna give Buttriff a run for his money in the final match? Okay, I'll take uh, I'll take Jake Peters because I think he bowled well all, from what I saw most of the week. Um, whenever I checked the standings, it seemed like his name was somewhere near the top. And uh, I do think that he's a shot maker. He has a title already, so he has that experience. And I think out of the other guys on the show, if there's anybody who <clears throat> can can get to that match and give Buttriff a decent challenge, I think it might be uh, might be Jake Peters. So uh, looking forward to the show tomorrow. How about you, Rob? You know, a live show on a major on a Monday night, which is, I think, a great time slot uh, for bowling. Uh, you know, any, any weekday night is a good time slot because it doesn't really compete with any other major sports that are going on. I'd, I'd like to kind of, I didn't look to see if there was any basketball games competing with, with, with bowling tomorrow, but uh, yeah, no titles, live television. 
it's always good. It's it's always fun to watch. I'm yeah, I'm really excited about it. True. All right. Well, we'll catch up with everybody after we uh, watch the show tomorrow night, and uh, we'll definitely be talking about the results of that show. Kind of kind of cool that we get to uh, do a little preview here tonight before we get there. I'll definitely be watching tomorrow night. And uh, Rob, that's about it. Any final words? Uh, yeah, I mean, my final thoughts this week are going to be with the um the 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 new rise of urethane uh i really it's amazing all i want to say buttriff holloman peters ryan hupe sloan six all using urethane final six uh i i would love to be a fly in the wall right now in one of the you know ebonite rooms storm uh, motive they got to be scrounging. I mean, I mean like really, really like what are we, we were, we're investing all of our money, all of our time into designing high performance bowling balls. And you got six guys that are in the top six, all using urethane uh, is Mike is, is resin dying in, in competitive bowling? Is it like slowly dying? Well, the bowling balls are only going to be a bigger part of the game. I disagree with you on this. I think that, you know, you could see urethane be as popular as you want, but people are always going to go out and buy different bowling balls and think they need 50 bowling balls to, uh, to bowl well, which, uh, which isn't the case. A lot of them, like these guys who go and bowl the Masters, they'd be better off taking the money and investing in some serious lessons with somebody around their area who knows what they're doing. All right, Rob, so that about wraps up our episode for this week. Uh, I hope our people enjoyed the interview with uh, Mr. Walter Ray Williams, Jr., and uh, a little bit of the preview for the for the show tomorrow night for the Masters. I'm excited about that. I'm going to get some some good grub going on for the show. And what time, uh, is, that's that about it, man. What time is that on, Mike, for the viewers? Is it 8 p.m. Eastern, right? 7 p.m. No, Central? 9 p.m. Eastern. 9 p.m. Oh, Eastern. Yeah. 9 p.m. Eastern. 8 p.m. Central. Let's get on there, man. Let's get on Twitter. Let's get on Facebook. Let's get on social media and, uh, and, and let's have a conversation while the show's going on tomorrow night. I know me and you will be on there, Rob. So uh, follow us on social media at Sweep the Rack on all platforms. Email us at Sweep the Rack at Gmail. Anybody out there in the bowling world that uh, is interested in being a guest or wants to come on, you know, whether you're just a, a, a regular uh, person in the bowling world or one of the world's best bowlers, shoot us an email. Shoot us a text. It's not that hard to get at us. You know where we're at. And uh, look for us on iTunes. We're up on there now. So, uh, and uh, look forward to the show tomorrow night. So, uh, take it easy, homie. Have a good week. All right. All right, you too, Matt. All right. You are now listening to Sweep the Rack Podcast featuring Brooklyn Rob and Big Mike.